Tonight's message is difficult because it's more of a narrative. It's difficult to preach narrative-type messages because you can't preach one verse or two verses or four verses. You have to preach the whole story. And I'll do that just in a hit-and-miss way tonight if you'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. And I want you to look at the first three verses of 2 Kings chapter 3. Is everybody okay tonight? Everybody happy? All right, good. Anybody have a fight with their wife this afternoon? Nope. Yeah, two hands. That's all I have. That's a pretty good percentage. Amen. Okay. Got your Bible? 2 Kings chapter 3, verse number 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made, but nevertheless he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin, and he parted not therefrom. Tonight I want to talk to you about this subject, Elisha and his reluctant message. Reluctant message. You see, Jonah wasn't the only one who didn't want to go preach. There's been others, preachers, who have been reluctant to preach a message. There's been Sundays I've been reluctant to preach what I knew God put on my heart because I knew what the fallout was going to be when I preached that message. But when you obey God, you just have to take the fallout. Elisha was one of those who obeyed God. And so it seemed that Elisha was the kind of man who tended to his own business, went about leading his prophets. He had about four places where he had schools and he would go teach his prophets and they would learn and, and they would grow and, and, and they would learn about the, uh, the traditional and they would learn now about the spiritual and he would keep them growing in the Lord. And when someone wanted to hear something from God, they would just hunt them up a prophet and um, they sometimes, when uh, he didn't want to hear from God, he sent someone to them. Say he was a little bit afraid to go to the prophet or didn't feel comfortable. He would send someone to the prophet to get the word of God that he needed. So this time, though, there's a reluctance on his part to give out the message that is sent for him. Uh, Jehoram has sent a message down there and he is reluctant to go. He don't want to go tell him what's about to happen. He don't want to go preach to him because he hadn't paid any attention to him up to this point. He won't pay any attention to him now. That's the way he felt. And so first thing I want you to notice why he was reluctant. He was reluctant because Jehoram was a compromiser. He was a compromiser. Here was a guy that did just enough to stay alive with God and just enough to make Jehoshaphat believe in him. But he was a sneaking compromiser. He 
kept his people worshiping at false altars. He did not uh, approve, he didn't just outright bow before Baal. He took the one that it, outside of his father's house and got rid of it just for show, just for a religious show. But he he did not uh, do away with the Baal. He endorsed it. He allowed it. He condoned it. He encouraged it. And you see, you can have an outward scene without having an inward change in your spirit. And so he tore the altar of Baal down that his dad had made there, thinking that the people would think he was much more spiritual, but in his heart he was still rotten. Not as rotten as Ahab, not as rotten as Jezebel. Nobody could get that bad, right? So, but he did come from their loins, so he is not... uh, uh, he certainly doesn't show us what spirituality really is. So Jehoram removed Ahab's idol. Uh, you remember he got rid of it, but it didn't leave his heart. It didn't leave his heart. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 lets us know why he tore it down. He tore it down so that God wouldn't kill him. That's why he did it. He didn't because he had a heart for God. He tore it down because God would not kill him. But he cleaved, or or look what the scripture says. The word cleaved here in verse number three means he held on to Jeroboam's sin. Are y'all understanding what he did? When I was in Israel this year, we were up in Dan, and I was just had a little time, but I was preaching about this, and they held on to his father's sin. And I think it's 18 times after that that Ahab's sin uh, or Jeroboam's sin began uh, to influence and infect every generation after him. Folks, you don't sin without it affecting somebody. It just does. It affects generation after generation. So he, 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 he cleaved or held to Jeroboam's sin. Well, what was that? It was allowing false worship outside of where God said to worship, which was where? In the temple, right? The tabernacle. When it went in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 12... Verse number 28, uh, you, will, you will find uh, some explanation of what happened. Let's just flip over there to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. And look what it says. Whereupon the king took upon himself, took counsel and made two calves of gold. Now this is Jeroboam and Rehoboam. The, 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 they, they split the kingdom. This is Solomon's boys. They couldn't get along. And so uh, Rehoboam took the, the, the south country that included Jerusalem and just, just to touch north of Jerusalem and then the rest of the south. And then uh, uh, Jeroboam took the north. And so he had that part of the uh, country. And so he had basically nine and a half tribes and, and, and Judah, uh, was, that's why they called it Judah. Uh, they didn't really have but one and a half or two tribes down there. So 
Uh, there was a real conflict going on here between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And so he got to thinking like this. He said, you know, uh, God said for all my people to take their pilgrimage and some of them would have to go 100 miles. They would do it four times a year and they would travel all the way by foot to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they would go down wherever they came from, where it was Nazareth or Cana, which was much further than the Sea of Galilee, and then they'd come down to Galilee and down the Jordan Valley and then up through the mountain until they got to Jerusalem. They did that four times a year. So Jeroboam was thinking, listen, if they keep doing that, What's going to happen is, is they're going to get under conviction and, and they're going to see that this is God's real way and they're going to go back to worshiping and living like they're supposed to. And when they do, they'll turn on me and I won't be able to run their lives anymore. I said, that's the way politicians think. That's the way they think. That, that's, that's why Political parties, that's how they think. They want to control you. Why do you think we give out so many entitlements in America? You know why we do it? Because you won't work. You won't make anything out of yourself. You'll stay just like you are, and the government owns you. That's why. That's why I'm opposed to entitlements, except for those who direly need them. And surely need them. And there are many who do. But there are also many who don't that is receiving them. And they want to control them. So what does he do? He's got to figure something out. Since he's got a larger area, he decides he's not going to just build one altar. He's going to build two. So he builds him an altar in the south. And he builds him an altar in the north, which is Dan. That's where we were when we uh, made the video last, last week, we were in the city of Dan. Now, they wasn't supposed to be up there. You remember the Danites, they were supposed to be down where the Philistines had taken over, but they didn't have enough guts and courage to fight them, and so they just chickened out, hightailed it toward the north country, and that's where they are, forgetting kind of all that God had said and all of his blessings. And so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, neither one of them were saints, but you can see that Jeroboam was a pretty bad dude, amen? He was willing to compromise. He built altars outside of the altar. That's like us saying, we're not going to believe in the cross. We're going to have two more crosses. We'll have another way to go to heaven. That's what he did. He fixed him up another way to go to heaven and all the time, they're thinking, hey, this got to be right. And so they're offering sacrifices in two different places. You know what that's called? Compromise. I know some of you um, think I'm too hard on this, this new contemporary movement, but this is the reason why. This was the first contemporary church right here. First one. They probably name it the Danite, Bethel, Gilgal, over the hill, under the rock, surround the creek. Community church. And so the reason I don't like it is because it compromises. 
You see, the, 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 the thought behind the contemporary movement today is, is that you don't preach this Bible and let the chips fall where they may, but that you go and survey your community and you ask them, what do you want in your church? And whatever kind of church you want, we're going to have so you will be happy. And so they put cappuccino in the hallways and they sit around their little tables and they talk and they watch the preacher on the screen and they go for an hour each week and that's about all they have to put into it and they don't get anything out of it. I don't like that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, Elisha didn't like it either. He said, I don't want to go up there and talk to that compromiser. God, don't make me go up there and preach to that compromiser. But God said, do something, you do it. You see, God himself personally observes our wrongdoing. You notice what it said in verse 2? In the sight of the Lord. Uh, when you do something, it's in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, God records not only that our, he personally observes what we do, but he records our evil deeds. He records our deeds. Look at verse number three. He cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which Israel, which made Israel to sin, and he parted not therefrom. You see, here had been, a, we're seeing a history of this thing just keep going down of the sins of Jeroboam. What we're seeing now here in America now is we're, we're seeing contemporaryism in our churches, and our young folks don't even know what a church looks like anymore. And in a few years, all we're going to have is the sins of Jeroboam just keeps on lowering and lowering and lowering what a church looks like. And that's why it bothers me so. Thirdly, God recognizes our degree of evil in verse number two. <laughs> you know, you can, he said this guy was bad, but he wasn't near as bad as his mom and daddy. I don't think anybody was bad as them, Right? They, they were bad dudes. But fourthly, God observes whether our reform or our reformation is partial or complete. Like when he tore his daddy's idol down, was that fully or partially? You see, what we want to do, we want to get right with God, but we want to do it partially. We want to serve God, but just partially. We want to go to church, but just sometimes. We want to teach a class, but just our kind of class we want to pick and choose. We, we want to have a great choir, but we don't want to practice. You see, we, we want to pick and choose. God doesn't have servants like that. He has servants that are servants. And then fifthly, God clearly notes our continuance in sin when the Bible said he cleaved unto the sins. In other words, he held on to this kind of worship. Instead of him saying, listen, we're going to tear these old altars down. We're going to get right with God and all you people. We're going to start going to Jerusalem four times a year. And we're going to do what God told us to do. But the Bible said he didn't do that. Look what he did. He cleaved to his sins. In other words, he held out to convenient worship. Here, 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 here's the way it worked. Jeroboam said, and let's see, it's a long way down to Jerusalem, and it's a long walk, and, you know, we got poor people up here in the north, and, 
And so we'll just make it easy for them. So we'll put one up here in Dan, and we'll put one down here at Bethel, and, and, and we'll have us two, and so they can choose whichever one they want. No helping me? And, and so if you live closer to Dan, you could go to Dan, and you could worship there, and you could be back home by dinner time, right? Walking. And then if you live closer to Bethel, you'd go to Bethel, and you'd be closer there, and you could worship there. So you know why he built those two altars instead of just one altar? Convenience. A compromiser is usually based upon our convenience. What's convenient for us? Is it convenient for us to go to church this Sunday? Oh, no, the kids are playing ball. We cannot go. It's not convenient. Is it convenient for us to go to church this Sunday? Oh, no, no. I, I, I had me a fishing trip planned this weekend. Is it convenient for us to go to church this Sunday? Oh, no. I miss Black Friday. I sure ain't missing Black Sunday. No, no, no. See, folks, listen to me. When you start compromising a little bit before long, you're compromising a lot. And so it usually amounts to your convenience. Well, I would come to your church. That's what I hear. I hear this all the time. If it wasn't so far, I'd sure come to your church. We get telephone calls. Wasn't so far to come to your church. I, 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 I hear that all the time. But it's amazing to me. They'll drive six hours to see UT get beat by Vanderbilt. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> hey, listen, it only happens one every hundred years, so I'll shout. But it's, uh, here's what it amounts to, easy church. Easy church. It's real easy. You can hire your band, that's easy. See, see, you don't have anything else going on, so you just hire your band, hire your preacher, and now they've got three or four staff, and I don't know why they got all those staff, because I don't know what in the world they do. And so you can pay, you have all that stuff done, walk out, easy church. Nobody has to keep the nursery, nobody has to do the children, nobody has to do all, nobody has to come back on Sunday night, nobody has to come back on Wednesday night, nobody has to teach two classes, nobody has to go the extra mile. No, it's easy church. Uh, it's easy commitment. It's easy to commit to one little thing. Thirdly, it's easy consecration. It's easy to consecrate just a little bit. That's called compromising. Secondly, here's the reason he didn't go, and I'm hurrying. First of all, he didn't want to go preached because of, of Jeroboam, uh, Jehoram, being a compromiser. Secondly, he didn't want to go preach because of conflict in verses 4 through 6. Now, I'm going to let you go read them. I'm just going to tell you what they say. I'm going to give you just a brief run through, and then you go home and read and see if I'm right or wrong, okay? You see, Moab had paid tribute to Israel for many years. And, uh, what tribute means is taxes. Uh, basically, what they were doing was paying them protection money. It was kind of like the mob, 
they, they, they paid them. But now, after Ahab died, they decided, you know, they may not be as strong now. They may not be as mean now. They may not be as tough now. We may be able to put the ar- an army together over here with a few of our neighbors, and we'll go in there, and we'll take over, and we won't pay taxes anymore. That's what they did. Moab was always irritating people. You know what? Moab was irritators. They was idolaters. They were fierce. You remember they were born out of incest. That's how they. That's where they came from. And so the changing of guard, they thought, would stop the taxes. So he didn't want to go because of the conflict. He knew something bad was about to happen. Number three, he didn't want to go preach to Jehoram because of confederacy. The confederacy, verses 7 through 9. You see, Jehoram, king of the northern tribes, he was the head of the northern tribes. And Jehoshaphat, he was king of Judah. That's what it's normally called, but it was the southern tribes of Israel, primarily Levi, the tribe of Levi and Judah is what he's talking about here. And so they joined forces against Moab. Isn't it amazing how they get together? The north and the south can't get together, but when Moab comes against them, they get together to fight against them. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam gets together to go fight, and they form a confederacy because Moab was a common enemy. Are y'all still with me? I'm just, this seems to be one reason why Jehoram put his religious front up uh, to gain Jehoshaphat's favor. I think when he knocked down his daddy's idol, he was hoping that Jehoshaphat would at least think a little better of him. And I think that's why he did that. And so they align here. And you'd think Jehoshaphat would learn by two other previous experiences not to yoke up with a compromising ungodly. Already twice he'd done it. It didn't work. He does it again. Folks, you can't hook up with ungodly and expect it to turn out godly. Can't do it. Y'all go back and, and read 2 Chronicles chapter 19. Read 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And, and you'll find where he yoked up with Moab and nearly was killed. And in 2 Chronicles you'll find that all their ships fell apart because of it. It's come apart. In 1 Kings twenty two forty nine, after God broke up his ship, he broke off. But how he does it again. If, you, if God broke up your whole navy, drowned, I mean, just, just absolutely tore up your whole navy, why in the world wouldn't you check out who you was aligning yourself with? I don't care if they was kin to you. I'm going to tell you something. There's some kin folks been in my family I don't align with. No, sorry. I don't. I wouldn't. Turn, I hope when I when I go by them, I hold my pocketbook. <laughs> you see, you got. Listen, folks. Your parents, your friends, people close to you, they compromise just like everybody else. Be careful. He didn't want to preach because of that. And fourthly, he didn't want to go because of his crisis. Verse eight and ten. 
So they went up to pick up Edom's help. Now, Edom was down in Petra, which is on the other side of the, or on the lower side of the Dead Sea, um, on the north side, and found no water en route to the battle. They just, all the way down there, and if you could see that land, you'd see it was salt land part of it, desert the rest of the way, all the way down trying to get over there, and they found no water. So the Moabites were adapted to the area. They, they knew how to live like camels, and so they were able to adapt to that. And so the Moabites, now they were, uh, while uh, Jehoram's uh, army is famished, their beasts of burden, their animals for food uh, are going to die because they have no water. And so Moab just says, hey, <laughs> this is not going to be no problem at all. They come down here thinking they was going to kick us around. We'll just take over. We'll just take over. So verse, verse 10, note that Jehoram thought God was going to judge them. Yeah, he, he thought, listen, we'll go to battle. But we don't have to do anything because God's going to judge them because they're wicked. Moab's, Moab, but listen, what was Jehoram? Why the world would God bless Jehoram? And he was wicked. Just because Moab wasn't from a Jewish tribe didn't mean God was obligated to judge them when both of them were idolaters. Don't think you're any better than anybody else when it comes to that. God spanks everybody that gets in trouble. He does. So this proves uh, he knew he wasn't right with God when you read verse number 10. You read verse number 10, it proves that Jehoram knew he was not right with God. He ought to have done that earlier. If he had done it earlier, he wouldn't be in the mess he was in right now. Now, here's the difference between holy and, un and, and unholy. Well, holy sees despair in human exhaustion. The other, I mean, uh, uh, unholy sees despair in human exhaustion, but holiness sees Hope in God's word, no matter what crisis they're going through. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat knew Elisha would speak God's word. Jehoram knew that Elijah would speak God's word. And he did the same thing everywhere he went. I hear people all the time say, we want the truth. We want the truth. We want the truth. Give us the truth. You give them the truth. They pout. They swell up. They get mad. They go to other churches. They move their membership. Put stuff on Facebook. Squall, cry, Twitter, tweet, Trump, whatever they do. They don't want the truth. I remember, what is that movie where that, uh, Jack Nicholson comes on and says, you can't handle the truth. And that's the way a lot of folks are. Oh, we want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Some people can. Because they really don't want it. Because when you do, you got to admit who you are, what you've done. And that means we got to repent, right? So look at his consultation in verse number 12. Notice they went to him. Now, he really was the chariot of Israel. They go to Elijah because he had taken over Elijah's place. And Elijah was called what? The chariot of Israel. Remember? And so 
who, uh, well, he said he was a chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. In other words, their greatest defense, their greatest, their greatest military power lay in the prophet Elijah. But Elijah's dead. Elisha takes his place. And so when they get in such a heap of trouble, who do they go to? Elisha. You know why? Because he had power with God. And they didn't because they, they, they were idolaters. They had left God. They started compromising. They, they began to tear down what God had built. And here was a man, Elisha, who would not compromise. And so they go to him just like they would have went to Elijah. And notice that the scripture in verse number 12, Nosaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. See, they didn't go down there to have a little visit with Elisha. They went down there because Elisha had the word of the Lord. That's what made the difference. But look at his consultation in verse number 12. They went to him. He really was the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. How desperately we need these kind of men today. If our pulpits across America was filled with men that believed and had the courage to say what was the truth. It's amazing what God might do in this world. His credentials said, I have the word. The word is with me. And the solution in verse 16 and 7 is, thus saith the Lord. You remember everybody in John chapter 6 after Jesus preached that sermon? And, and, you know, some of them followed him because he's sick, and some of them called him because he, he, he gave them a good supper, and, and some of them followed him for all kinds of reasons, and they just kept falling out and falling out and falling out. And he looked at his disciples and said, you're going to go too? And they said, Lord, where would we go? Peter said, where would we go? Where are you going to go in times of crisis? You ought to go to the one who has the word. You ought to go to the word yourself. God's given it to you. That's our hope in crisis. And did you know the whole defense of Israel lay in the word? I had thinking about that this year as I looked at that little bitty country. There is no way in the world you can explain Israel being a nation, when most of Israel, like this, that's the way it is. If you take the Mediterranean Sea as our border, go from here, and it goes like this. What's on each end and in that little pocket is all Israel is. But it is absolutely a miracle that that little nation still exists when Jordan is on one side, Syria is up in the north, and Lebanon in the far north, they're surrounded by Muslim countries. On each side of those Muslim countries are more Muslim countries. And if you go south, there's more and more and more Muslim countries. And everybody in this world hates Israel except the United States. That's why if Hillary Clinton had been elected president and Israel had needed us, she would not win. I don't know where Trump will or not, 
But I'll guarantee you one thing, we better not pull our hands away from Israel. Mm. They come for counsel, but they don't heed it. They come for blessing, but they don't choose it. So they'd rather live in a sin of convenience. No commitment to God, no loyalty to the church. Uh, they must keep up a front and look like they are, just like he did. Have a few religious friends scattered around, get some compliments. But real men of God are known where God can use them for their power. And I believe in America, I just wish our leadership all over this country would understand that they need hot, fiery pulpits standing for God with God's hand back on this country again. And it probably will never happen. But before, but for Jehoshaphat, Elisha would speak. And he, 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 how little do the unrighteous and compromised realize that they're the only godly and holy? They, they don't realize just how few of us it is. Did you know that? So before Elijah could speak, he must get to a place where he could. Because this two-faced king had frustrated and dampened his spirit. He, he wasn't ready to preach. I'm going to talk to you a little bit here now. He wasn't ready to preach. A two-faced king who cut his throat everywhere he could, stabbed him in the back any time he could, couldn't believe a word he said, a fake and a fraud as far as God's concerned. And when God said, I want you to go preach to him, and, they, and he's given the opportunity to give, preach the word to those that sent to him, he said, I'm not ready to preach. Did you know you have to get ready to preach? You do. And so look what happens. They bring out the minstrel. Now, that means the musician, the harpist. And, and so it looks to me like Elisha carried a music evangelist with him all the time. And so for him to get ready to preach, they had to do a little worship. And so he began to play. He needed his spirit calmed down. And so they began to play. And he starts to get ready to preach. He's praying and and they're praising, and he's praying, and then he's praising, and he's praying, and then he's praising, and he's praying, and then he's praising, and he's getting ready to preach. You see, hindering the music in a church is almost as bad as hindering the preaching in a church because that time of worship helps the preacher get ready to preach. There's times that all kinds of things is spinning in the pastor's head through the week or maybe even that morning or that day. And, and he's sitting there, even though he has his, all of his sermon and all of his outline, he's just not ready to preach. But when you start singing loud about Jesus and singing to the top of your lungs about Jesus, he starts to pray a little and praise a little and pray a little and praise a little and pray a little and praise a little and repent for being so sorry. And then he gets up and lets it rip. That's the way it works. Saul was meaner than the devil. But when he was feeling bad, he called David to play for him to calm him down. I like that, don't you? That's why the devil likes to mess up a song service. Yep. That's why. That's why the devil tries to stink up the music. 
That's why the devil tries to create strife in the music program or who plays the piano or leads the singing or if no one leads the singing. They want to create strife if the atmosphere of praise and the atmosphere of worship is not what it ought to be. The devil likes for it to be that way. We can be partial to it or we can separate from it. And so I came to church today to praise the Lord. I came to church today to praise the Lord. I came to church today for my crazy preacher to preach something that might help me in the Word. And then he gets his counsel. God says, here's what you do. Go down and dig you some ditches. You ever, ain't not many preachers dig ditches today, would they? He's digging ditches. They go dig ditches, and it's basically what, what we would just call a, a trench. And so they, they deal, deal, deal trenches, and they expect God's blessings, and so they're preparing for them. They don't understand what God's going to do. They, he, they just do what he said to do. Go dig you some trenches. They don't know. Listen, folks, if you're going to be blessed, you've got to expect God's blessing. In other words, do what he said doing and let him come through. So they're out there digging ditches. I thought the same thing. God digging ditches is hard, especially on a worthless preacher. But I'm out here, he's out there digging ditches. And so the next morning they get up, they look out there and see all that, all that ditches and all that water in those ditches, but they didn't see water. You see, the sun was at such an angle, when they looked at those ditches, it looked like blood. Ditches of blood. And so they said, them crazy idiots done got into it. They, they probably was Baptists, and they had a fight right in church. And there was blood running down the house. They said, they done killed each other. So we'll just walk down there and get all their stuff and take it over to our house. So they didn't go up to them for war. But they were ready for them. They were hiding. And when they got there, the mighty God which had given them instructions won the victory for them when he let water look like blood. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever been, are you willing to do what God wants you to do to be blessed? See, water comes a long way. It said to come from Edom. That's a long way come from a dry place to a raging river. Edom's dry, dry, but it came from a dry place and became a river that filled the trenches. Some of you, like me, you get dry and you need a river to fill the trenches. You say, well, we don't have a river. Oh, yes, you do. You got one right in here. And it will, the Bible says, bubble up inside of you. Read John chapter 7. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And he'll take your dry time and turn it into a wet time. It was a miracle of God. We need, today, we need his instructions. And we need to follow him to the T. We need to obey him and we need to follow it to the T. If he says dig ditches, dig ditches. Digging is hard work. So if getting God's blessing means we have hard work, we have hard work. 
Been hard work in church work. Not easy. It's hard. I know something else. He didn't say just dig one or two ditches. He said dig many ditches. So just keep digging ditches. And God, one of these days, will fill them with water and bring the enemy under your power and under your control. And they were conquered because God gave them the victory. I really don't even know how to give an invitation tonight, but I believe there's some people here that knows what they need to do. Could be your ditch just stopped up. It would run, but it stopped up. Once you clean it out, watch the water run again. So I'm so dry, preacher. I, I hadn't sensed God in so long. I, I need God to just fall on me fresh. Won't you get down here and get your heart right? It's not anybody's fault. Not anybody's fault but yours. Let, let that come. We all go through hardships. We all go through troubles. But the water can bubble up even in our troubles. Won't you dig a ditch tonight and let God fill it?